Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Passing Dimes. Today's guest came to us highly recommended. Between the ages of 15U and 18U, he won a medal every year at Nationals, including a couple gold medals. He was on Ontario's provincial team. He was an OVA All-Star. He's been on the junior national team. He's been on Volleyball Canada's B team, and he's currently at the National Excellence Program. So please welcome to the show, Dre Foreman. Thanks for doing this, man. Sweet. Thanks for having me. So how did you get your start in volleyball? Just looking at who you played with, with Forest City and, and London Fire, pretty pretty solid team where I think, if not, the, the majority for sure, if not everybody, went on to play post-secondary. Yeah, looking back now at that roster, like Matt Maudsley played on the national team at some point. Sebastian played on the national team at some point. John Luce was provincial team. Uh, a few more guys, I'm trying to think. Charlie, but Charlie Bringlow played for the youth national team, I think, at one point. Like, to have that many guys on one club team, in retrospect, is kind of insane, like, all from one area, more or less. But Now, did yeah. you guys know each other before you you uh, came together? Like, were you friends, or did you meet each other through club volleyball? Yeah, we definitely met each other through club. I did not have any, and I wasn't even really going to play volleyball, to be honest, so it's kind of cool that we all met, but... I was more of a basketball guy, and I'm pretty sure Matt knew his whole life that he wanted to be a pilot. So I think he like he was tall. He's been like six four since the seventh grade. So <laughs> like they put him in volleyball. Like you didn't even have a choice, really. Nice. So how did it start for you? Like, did you play for City House League, or was like 14U your intro in a club, or did did your parents sign you up, or what made you kind of make the switch from basketball to make volleyball your full time thing? Actually, it was this coach who like to this day. Probably, uh, if I talk to him now, he's probably the reason I'm playing volleyball. Is uh, I wasn't even really going to try out. Like, in, I would have been in the seventh grade, like 11 years old, and there was a tryout in the tryouts uh, like in the fall, and I was like, I don't really want to do this. Like, I don't want to walk home. It's kind of cold. Like, I have to practice at lunch, and like, I can't have a recess either. And he pulled me to the side one day, like in between classes, and he was like, Hey, like, we didn't see you at tryouts last night. I was like, yeah, I don't really want to play. And he was like, no, 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 you're, you're going to play. You don't have a choice. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess, yeah, like, that's how I started playing. And what's interesting about that guy is, like, low-key, I think he's a volleyball genius because I was goofy-footed at the time. Like, I'm left-handed now. Um, I was goofy-footed. And most coaches uh, or, or therapists of any kind will try to fix your footwork so that you don't have back issues or anything like that. But he was like, ah. Uh, You've been running your whole life. You've been jumping your whole life, but you don't have any like previous body awareness or like understanding of volleyball. So how about you just hit with your other hand? And I was like, oh, okay. So uh, instead of being a goofy footed righty and switching my footwork, he was just like, well, you can just be left handed. It's not like you've built a bunch of like neural pathways or mus muscles that you have to kind of like retrain. It'll just be for the first time. So. No way. So do you throw a ball with your left hand or, or like, were you, can you do ambidextrous stuff? Like did he made you a left-handed volleyball player? Yeah. I only played two sports left-handed volleyball and basketball. I think he saw me playing basketball left-handed and got the idea that maybe I could play volleyball left-handed too, but everything else, like any other sport I play with my right hand. You throw a football with your right hand? Mm, I'm thinking more racket sports like tennis, ping pong, uh, badminton. <laughs> That's unreal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I write with my right hand, too. Like, it doesn't make any sense. Oh, that's awesome. So, coming up, I mean, meddling every year from 15 to 18, did the core stay the same? Like, I know Charlie, I think, jumped in late, but you mentioned Mods and Sebastian and some other guys. So, were, were you guys the same team even when you jumped over from Forest City to London Fire? 
Yeah, essentially, uh, sorry, I should have mentioned Sam on too, but essentially the team from like 15U to 18U, aside from Charles jumping in, our 18U was basically the same guys with, um, I think two or three guys would have fluctuated out, like Owen Pozik and Muneeb Samara, but I would say like, like the starting six and like the two coming, like the two more or less like double sub guys were part of the core group from when we entered high school. Now, did your coaches have a plan? Because we, we were talking before the show, um, I don't believe you have a provincial championship, but you have a national championship. So did they just plan the season in a way that you guys are going to be competitive every event and trying to peak for, for the big one at the end of the year? Actually, 16 you we, we did win provincials. Oh, okay, that's more right. More or less like, yeah, with both of the club coaches I had, they were essentially the plan was we should have our peak, like, I think most of those years, like, I never won a Grand Prix or any of the, like, tournaments at the universities or anything like that. We were more or less, like, figuring it out. And then, uh, like, come provincials, I guess, our team all had, like, a mama mentality and we'd figure out ways to win. Uh, but I think both Pat Johnson and Dave Phoenix, like, the idea was to have our success at the end of the season, for sure. So what was a practice like with so many skilled guys in the gym? Like, would you guys just do a lot of gameplay or where did the learning really occur? Like, were you guys good your whole career? Or did somebody really have to train you guys up? A lot of you went to different high schools as well, right? So it wasn't exactly that you you played all the way in every system, right? It was really the club team came together from, like you said, several different towns and schools. Yeah, I think, which is strange, but I think we had a good match a good mash of personalities that created this like weird environment of accountability, like, that's something that gets preached in a lot of like universities, colleges, and even with the national team, like being willing and like being real, being willing to come down on your teammates in a respectful way, but knowing that you're all like trying to get better. It's hard to actively bring that out of your teammates. If you're a coach or like a staff member to like being willing, being willing to yell at your friends, but that group, like it was so strange. We were so close. I think maybe as a, byproduct of the success that we were willing to just be like hey man like you can do better like our coach wouldn't even really have to come down on us most of the time like we were so like open and willing i think we were so hungry to improve once we started to have success that it was like if we can do this we might as well go like all the way you know like we had that little taste of success and then everyone was just so hungry for it every day of practice yeah, do you have an example? Like, would you talk to guys across the net if they weren't bringing it in the drill, or was it mostly guys on your side oh, yeah. trying to win the drill, or like how how deep did this go? Absolutely, in training, like a lot of the guys that I played with for the most of my career are like notorious for that. To be honest, like Sebastian Lethbridge, uh, Sam Otten, Alec Bueller, like it's almost like uh, I think it's more frowned upon now because it's such a gentleman sport, and like I guess now that I've played more internationally, that's not something that can like Canadian players are known for doing is like just like being shit talkers, but that's definitely <laughs> one of my favorite parts of the game for sure. I can remember my club days like especially when I was playing Libero and could more or less like roam around and had a little bit less responsibility. I would just like walk up to the setter before the play if they were receiving and be like, I don't think you'll set middle right now. And like whether the setter could brush it off, but if he chose to set middle there's like a psychological war going on that's like, okay, like, did I make that choice as a setter because he told me I wouldn't set middle and I want to prove him wrong? Or if you go away from it, did you set away from it because I told it's like a it's like a battle that was completely unnecessary. I could have not said anything, 
but I feel like it adds like another element to the game of like psychological warfare when when you're willing to have that banter between two people or a whole team of people. Nice. Um, Pat Johnson's given me some stuff over the years as far as like coaching techniques and stuff he's tried. And then I know when he was coaching you guys in club, he played around with the idea of a competitive cauldron. Do you remember that from your club days where I think everything got charted? Like you knew who won practice at the end of the day or the end of the month. Like, was that something that was big with your squad? Yeah, for sure. We had uh, that cauldron. Like, I'm not even like with the like kind of am still with the financial program because we're going back to school, but. For the three years that I wasn't, I still got all of the emails with the stats and comparisons and like all-time stats and plus minus and stuff like that. So that's definitely a big part of like the LVC and, and Fanshawe culture. Yeah, he's a numbers guy for sure. Like plus minus was a really big part of who played for him because I can remember plays that like even if something very excellent happened, he would be like very wary of getting too over emotional. Not just him, but like watching us. Uh, because, like, volleyball is such a game of, of momentum. Like, he was very wary of points that felt like they were worth more than one and then losing because you got too hyped up over a bounce or something, and it really didn't matter that much in the long run. So hopefully he doesn't mind you going into detail here, but when you mentioned, like, stats, you, you as a libero could look back and you could compare it and say, like, oh, man, like, Sam passed better than me that practice or I beat him out, like – was yeah, it that absolutely. detailed that like everything was on the board and you could say that like oh I, I was the best pra- uh, passer on my team today or you know what somebody somebody else got me <laughs> yeah we it was my years at Fanshawe were a little bit strange because we really only had two primary receivers like Gunner and I so we would we would compete with each other but most of the other guys like of our starting line because we had a two man service like Nate didn't pass James was never gonna pass. So it was Gunner and I, and of the bench guys that were coming in, a lot of those guys, like the two years I had there, like the roles were so niche that it was like, you wouldn't really come in just to receive, like you would come in to uh, take a blocking spot and a defensive spot and a serving spot more or less. So yeah, we definitely had those stats there, but I don't think they, for us, they didn't get used as much for reception as they did for um, attack stats. Yeah, let, let's go into that two-person serve receive. Like you mentioned, you, you did it at the college level, and not only that, like you, you have a national bronze medal with that system. So when, when Pat proposed it, or did you bring it to the table, like what were your thoughts when you're just like, we're just going to use two here? Like everyone else in the country uses three, some might even use four. We're, we're just going to send two back there, and it is what it is. Yeah, honestly, I, I talked to a friend about that the other day. Like it, it doesn't really make sense logically to me, even though it works perfectly, like it works flawlessly for two, like it doesn't make sense. Cause like, I don't understand how you can, as a coach be like, okay, we're passing very poorly right now. This isn't working. Let's have one less guy. pass. <laughs> like that doesn't make any sense. Right. But yeah, I don't know. He's, he's a genius for that. Like that. I don't, I don't know how it came about was I got injured. Actually. Um, I sprained my ankle. And James had to play left side, so we had another middle pin come in. But James, uh, he can't receive, so Gunner, we had like a right side more or less take like a meter of the court. Gunner took like five meters, the little bit at the time, and the other left side took two meters maybe. And then when I came back and I was healthy, I took the other left side spot, so the opposite didn't have to pass anymore. And I don't, I don't know who we would have been playing, but we were just like, yeah, James, slide up here. Like, they're not serving too tough. And it upped our server receive efficiency, like, five folds we were like hey let's let's start doing this more often <laughs> so would you guys call seams or was it just as simple as this is my half this is your half or was one guy just green light to go get the ball if it was like an easy float 
Um, I'd say Gunner took like 60% of the balls. I probably like he had more initiative to go wild as the lib to like make the call. Like if we were going to switch or if he was just like, get out of the way, I got all of this. Like Gunner definitely took the initiative there. But as far as seams go, like nine meters of court is pretty wide for two people. So there honestly weren't really seams. Like if a ball was going to land between us, it, it wasn't because one of like we thought that the other person was going to go for it. It was literally like too far for both of us to get. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, there weren't really problems with that. Now, before every coach or player listening to this thinks, oh, we should do a two-person server seed, was there ever a flaw or somebody who exposed it, like maybe a really tough spin server? Did anyone kind of make you guys think twice about the two-man and have to switch it for that rotation? We did have problems with this one spin server from Australia who could rip a molten at like 110, 115 kilometers an hour. And that was a problem for us because we played with the McCossin Mikasa ball all year round so you basically dealt with like manageable float serves and maybe like one guy on a team had a spin serve but if we could basically get out of that rotation it wasn't really a problem for us but with a team full of spin servers with us also having to switch the ball at nationals that's uh basically like a spin server's dream ball like if you if you have a wrist with the molten like your your control of the ball is incredible so yeah, there's definitely, if you have a really good spin serving team, you could probably serve us off the court, no problem. So we kind of skipped ahead to the, the fan shot talk there. So with you coming out of club and having success uh, at, at a lot of age groups, what was your recruiting process like? Like what made you want to stick with PJ and go to Fanshawe? Was it what you wanted to study or you just wanted to stay close to home? Obviously the team was really competitive. Like did you know you wanted to be a pro volleyball player like leaving grade 12? No, no, I had no idea. I actually, I signed up for a 13th year. That's a funny story. I, I, so I was going to do grade 13. I was kind of on the fence with what I wanted to, to do. And I was like, okay, like I'm being recruited by a bunch of schools, but do I really want to go into $60,000 in debt in a program that I really don't know that I want to take? Like, so I signed up to do grade 13 and I went to one high school party. And I was like, I can't do this anymore. <laughs> I really cannot be a part of this anymore. So I talked to Pat, and Pat had been recruiting me for the whole year um, just because like, I was on his team, and he was like, yeah, like there's always a spot for you, even if it's just a train and you, and you don't want to come to school. And this would have been like a week into the school year. Um, and I was like, yeah, for sure. So James and I uh, went to the registrar's office and applied like two weeks into the into school into like some random bird courses like i think i had two sociologies a psychology anthropology um just like weird courses that i didn't really know much about which is actually a blessing in disguise like i learned a lot in those but yeah the first year there was basically just going to volleyball school like volleyball is <laughs> the primary <laughs> And how did Pat manage that where he's your club coach, he controls your, your playing time. Was he putting pressure on you or was he just letting you know, like, hey, man, I, I really like your game. You're always welcome here. Like, would other coaches be recruiting you maybe more heavily than he was? I think Pat kind of Pat kind of knew, like, like, he got a good amount of time with my personality and more or less he, the our, our kind of communication was, if you want to come here, there's going to be a spot for you, but... Um, I think he felt uncomfortable with the idea of like actively trying to recruit me in my 18 year year, um, which respect for that. Cause like he gets the most time with me, obviously, so he can make the best points about the opportunity to go to Fanshawe. But 
I think he let other recruiters have their time. Like I did end up almost going to Nipissing. Um, I talked to Ryerson a little bit in Western, but I didn't find anything, any of their programs. I found that if I couldn't say that I wanted to do it a hundred percent, then I didn't think it was worth the debt that was going to come. So nice, nice. That's a good thought process. So, uh, just to keep our, our theme of jumping around a little bit, I wanted to go back to your comment about JJ that he was a dominant left side, went on to be at like the national team level, but didn't pass. So did did he get those reps in practice? Like, was it just what was best for the squad, or he was just over the moon to be a left side that didn't have to serve receive? <laughs> Bird didn't care, man. Bird started playing volleyball at seventeen, so like the idea of like reception to him just doesn't exist. Like, <laughs> he's just this crazy freak athlete, like. A year before uh, Fanshawe, he got invited to go to Italy for a dunk contest, fully paid for. Like, wow. the dude's just a freak. So to him, it was just like, wherever you go, wherever I go, like, I, I want to be on the court the most so I can hit the most balls. So the idea of, like, Pat being like, hey, like, we can set you instead of, you know, 15 to 18 balls a match, and you have to come out when you go to the back row. It's like, we can set you 30 balls a match, and you can hit from the back row. It's like, who, who wouldn't take that deal? I don't think he was worried about it at all. <laughs> awesome. So obviously Fanshawe was a good choice for you, not only for volleyball, but it sounds like friendship and, and you figured out your, your path for school as well. But uh, one thing that was unique about you is you made the junior national team as a, as a college guy. And I checked that roster. It looked like it was all university guys. And I think Finn McCarthy snuck in there as like a, a true 18U club player. So was that kind of a status thing for you, knowing that you were at the highest level, even though sometimes college doesn't get the same reputation that uh, U Sports does? Yeah, it was it was fun. Like um, that experience was was definitely amazing, and it, it was amazing to be around guys that talented. Because you're always, especially in the CCAA, you're such a big fish in like a small pond. So playing with guys like I think five of those, four or five of those guys are on the on the A team right now, like Dane and Sean, uh, Eric Lefke. Everdeen just finished at the World Championships, so yeah, it was cool being around that kind of talent. But I think we had a diverse enough group that there were jokes about the CCAA being a worse league, but it was nothing malicious. Like they were all fun guys, so and it is like objectively a worse league, I think. So um, in terms of like feeling overly different about it, I didn't honestly pay that much mind to be in a, a college player to be honest um there wasn't a lot of attention drawn to it like we were just there to train so yeah i don't know nice so what was your trial process was there i did uh excuse me were you identified uh did you have to go to gatineau and attend like a large tryout like how was this squad put together actually my first year trying out for the junior national team i got cut i was the worst libero receiving there <laughs> <laughs> It was so bad that I actually got to play left side at the trout, and I was just spin serving the whole time, like the last day. Um, yeah, it was pretty brutal. Like I can't like I basically like it's weird. It's weird to say this out loud, but like made the provincial team in my 18U year, and like we had a lot of success at Fanshawe my first year. But if you asked me how to pass a float serve, like I really would not be able to give you the answers. Wow, that's that's interesting because when you were on the provincial team, we talked about this before the show that you and uh, Jordan Pereira, like you also did the two person serve receive. So it was yeah. working at like the national team challenge cup level, right? So 
So as the level went up to like the junior national team where the serves just that much better, was the ball dancing that much more? Like what caused the challenge? Like who were some of the other liberos at camp? I'm surprised that you ranked the lowest according to the stats. There was a guy named Zach from uh, Quebec school. I'm not sure with which one. Um, JP, Eli Rizzo, who went on to set the like all-time Pac West digs per season and digs per match record. Um, one other guy. So pretty good company then for sure. Yeah, yeah, it was rough. It was rough, but yeah. Uh, the next year, basically, there was a pretty similar. Basically, I think it's an invited trial. But either way, I got an email from Frank Playway about it, and I was like, "Yeah, um, I'll give it another shot." Like, um, I got Quest for Gold that year, and so I, I wanted to use that money to try out, and I had a lot more success. I was a lot less nervous, um, and I think after getting cut. The idea of like expectation, like I could go there and play more freely, knowing like they don't expect me to be amazing. Like they've seen me before, they understand who I am as a player. Um, so yeah, there. Uh, I think the same ish group of liberos was at that tryout um, with Justin Louis as well, who's on the junior team right now. And I had way more success. I was a lot more confident. Uh, yeah, and it was way more fun to be honest. Uh, a, a good buddy of mine named Davey O'Coin uh, went to the B team tryout with no expectations of making the team, but just to be around that type of talent, like imagining it as an actual camp instead of a tryout. And he said it was one of the like best experiences of his life. So I can attest to that for sure. Nice. And what contributed to your nerves at the first trial? Was it the idea that there's there's people around, everything's being statted and charted, especially as a service receive, where you maybe just looking around and seeing the talent in the gym? Like what what affected your play in that way it wasn't it wasn't that much it wasn't that so much as i've been watching national level volleyball for a long time and like going really out of my way to find any type of video of it so as soon as i don't know if you've been in the center in gatineau but as soon as you like walk around the parking lot there's a huge sign of like the national team players like playing on world cups like qualifiers norsecas all, all that type of stuff and like just like walking that path and like standing in the gym where they trained, I was like, holy shit, dude, like this is where it's at. Like it, <laughs> there is no level higher. Like I can't aspire to be more than training in this gym every day. And I think like doing those few laps, like stretching, like imagining the actual like Olympic team stretching. I was like, holy shit, man. Yeah. Those first two days were definitely rough. And I also failed, like they do a physical testing and I never stretch. So I, I failed like all of the physical and like mobility examinations that day as well. So <laughs> I was like, okay, well, this is this is a good start to my first impression. Fanshawe has done well. I think they finally cycled out now, but uh, you mentioned you're still around the program. So how cool was it as an alumni to, to get the bronze nationals and do really well, but then to see that team, uh, I think it was two seasons later, win a national championship with some of the guys you would have played with. Like, was that, did you feel like you were on the, the slope there to try to, close this out like everything was trending towards Fanshawe getting a national championship absolutely absolutely like we our alumni community is honestly amazing and it's awesome to be a part of that like we the community is still active every day to this day and um yeah we all celebrated together especially because James and I went to NEP and lived together and then he went back for that national championship run. So he was keeping me updated like every day when something cool is happening with the team. I go back to train with them for uh, Christmas break. So I get to kind of get an update with 
how they are. And Pat and I talk like strategies and tactics and stuff like that. And I train with them every summer. So I was definitely super involved with like the last three uh, iterations of Fanshawe teams that there have been. Nice, nice. So you've spent a lot of time in Gatineau, and yeah, I've been the, to the facility, and it's neat to see how people behave, how like professional it is, how Dan and Lionel are kind of running the show. The only thing that caught me off guard was uh, in the team room. A lot of the trophies are like behind a door, like nobody really celebrates. Like there's a World League trophy there that like is just kind of like in the room, like it's not even on display or anything. But yeah, it's definitely a special facility, and just the mood there and the banners and everything. So. With you, a guy who's lived in, in Gatineau, what is the, the vibe there? Like, does it get a little draining sometimes because you guys lift, you practice? Like, there's a lot of hours put in in that facility. Yeah, it's it's definitely draining. It's a grind. Like, I think anyone that's been there, even the, like the person in the world who loves it the most, who's loved that experience, will tell you it's a grind. Um, I would say a big part of that program that they, pre- that they preach is gratitude. That's probably why the trophies aren't just, like, out on display like that. Um, I think the culture that they're trying to build within Volleyball Canada that they rightfully so should be building is like um, we always talk about the idea that there are people like battling in the slums of like other countries to have an opportunity to have the one that we have to train. So we should be super appreciative of it. So I think that's why the trophies like the trophies aren't really what we're playing. We're playing for the community. I think um, like what's hung up in the in the team room is like just pictures of us like celebrating together. I think those are the only things that are really on display in there. So yeah, in terms of the, the center, like we have a 10, 20 second moment every day before every training of just gratitude where we stand in a circle. And then, um, every day someone else will talk about a reason why they're thankful that they, that they have this opportunity or just why they're thankful in life. So, um, yeah, it's manageable for sure. Awesome. Awesome. That's definitely a cool trick to, to build into the culture of the squad. Can you just share a little bit what your schedule would be like at, uh, sorry, NEP? I, I was about to call it FTC, but they have uh, rebranded the name there. But what would be like a typical week for you guys? Are you on court every day with weights about three times or what is the oh, load? Yeah. It's, 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 it's a battle for sure. On a heavy day, you'd have to be at the center by like 8.30. If you had therapy, like say on the worst day, um, just so you have therapy at 8.30. So you have to be there by like 8.15. You work with Mel, and then you start your protocol, um, and then the actual training starts at 9, and I'm a libero, so most of the time I'll be on court. So I'll have about an hour and a half of straight, almost repetition reps because we don't do any play, more or less, until the afternoon. So like two hour, an hour and a half, two hours of the morning is – if you can imagine probably like 800 consecutive balls of reception (laughs) Uh, yeah uh and then you'll have a go you'll have a workout at like 11 15 um it's like an hour depends on what phase of like the season we're in it's conjugate so it could be like hypertrophy speed max strength or anything like that um training is normally like you'll get back home at like 12 30 the next training is at four but you have to be there at 3 30 but if you have therapy again and you're going to have therapy throughout the year because your body is getting brutalized. So you're probably there like 320, 325. You work with Mel. You do your protocol again. And then we'll probably we'll do our uh, second warm-up of the day so it's a little bit shorter. Um, and then we'll play like Volus or some kind of like tennis mini game that works on like small ball and like you have to work tactics and strategies. And then it's like three hours of uh, like some kind of – 
jumping version of volleyball. Like you're basically grounded in the morning. So all of the jumps get used in the afternoon, unless you're a middle, um, or a setter that has to jump set all the time in the morning. Um, so that can end up being for setters, like 400, 500 jumps in the afternoon for middles, 300, uh, for left sides, like 150, 200 for liberos. Like I never jump, So <laughs> it's not so bad for me, but I can only imagine how exhausted those guys are. And then you wake up and do it again <laughs> the next day. That's gnarly. And I think for you going after college, obviously you're a little bit more mature. Like, were you ever there when either Jesse or Matthias Elser were there or some other guys who chose to kind of go, uh, before they went to uh, university? Like, how do you think they, they handled it as like an 18 year old? Yeah, I was teammates with both of them. Um, those guys are also some of the most mature people I've ever met in my life. Like Matias, the age range on my team last year that had Matias was 17 to 27. Cool. And Matias was probably in the top third demographic of maturity on that team without a shadow of a doubt. Um, so he had no, he had like almost no difficulty, like in terms of like the dietary stuff or like the video stuff. Cause like that kind of stuff doesn't exist as a grade 12 athlete, but no, like, they, I, I would not have been able to come to the to the NUP at seventeen and conduct myself and be a productive teammate at all, eating chicken nuggets and craft dinner every day. Like no chance. I was told to ask that about you. Is it true? Like you're on the chicken nugget diet to this day, or have you kind of matured <laughs> and gone on from that? Because that was one question that came up. Uh, all right, I won't lie. I'm, I'm better now. I'm doing much better now. But there was a period of like four years where. I probably, I had chicken nuggets every day, but <laughs> like literally, literally every day. Like, like a 10-pack meal every time? No, nah, I wouldn't go to like McDonald's or something. That would get too expensive. I'd get Jane's breaded uh, nuggets, and I'd either get it from Costco or like someplace I could get them in bulk. <laughs> nice. uh, and I'd use these little uh, like pre-organized uh, skillet packets from the Oasis at Fantra, and I would like have my own little sauce and nuggets and uh, some kind of some kind of like veggie, whether it be like cucumbers or carrots or something like that <laughs> every day for like three years. Oh man, that's great. Thanks for sharing that. So with uh, NEP, how did the vibe change when certain guys would come back? Like when Joey was there, he mentioned Riley Barnes was injured and he hung around Gatineau a little bit longer uh, before he started his pro contract. And, and just having that guy be there as like a role model and somebody who's been at the highest level, like was there anyone who stands out in your mind that's come back where you really benefited well, from his comeback you can feel it right away when they walk in the gym absolutely yeah barnes barnes is a good example because he spent like a month with us like as he was healing his ankle that he broke but um even like barnes with us full time now and like for the first month people were afraid to like step on his toes if if he made a bad set you wouldn't want to criticize him because it's like holy shit that's the world cup setter like this guy has played at the highest level internationally so i think uh it's definitely, but you got to get over that when your teammates like, and as the relationships started to build and stuff, everyone got better at it, but you could definitely feel the ener energy in the gym. Like you would get a little bit more competitive as well. And maybe like you wouldn't want to make a mistake a little bit less because, um, you don't want them to like judge you or whatever, but all the guys on the A team that I spoke to have been good guys. So that's not really something you have to worry about with them, but you can, you can definitely feel a shift in the gym. It'd be the same if I, if I went to like, my high school gym right now there'd be like a weird like quiet energy in the gym everyone would be a little bit afraid to be themselves but once you spend more time with these guys like that goes away they're all good dudes 
Yeah, I was just thinking that, like, was there a moment where you stopped kind of being starstruck a little bit and you were a peer? Like, if you see TJ or Blair or Gord or somebody in the hallway, like, are you, is is the squad that tight where everybody knows of each other? Or do the A guys tend to hang out with the A guys? No, no, it's it's a, just a whole national team community. Like, I don't think any of the A, time, A guys would have problems hanging out in, like, a, in a group as big as 60 guys with, like, the youth guys, the junior guys, the NEP guys, the B team guys, like, um, I forget who said it to me, and he's gonna be upset that I that I forget um, who it was. But I think I was showing some nerves at one point, and one of the guys came up like, "Hey, once you're once you're in the family, like you're in, man. You don't have to stress anymore. Like we're gonna love you. You're a part of this community." So nice, nice. That's awesome. Yeah. I do have a funny story about that. Uh, Blair's gonna laugh if he sees this. I've been watching Blair play <laughs> since like 2014. And he had no idea who I was until, like, 2018. Um, and I, I have this thing where, like, in between uh, when we're training and there's, like, little lapses where you can, like, go get a drink or, like, there's a break in the drill, I like to, like, leave the gym to kind of reset my mind. Whether things are going poorly or things are going well, I kind of like to take the opportunity to, like, just get out of the gym. So, like, whether I have a water bottle or not in the gym, I'll leave the gym. And on this particular day, I didn't have a water bottle. And Blair came up to me like, hey, man, you don't have a bottle? And I was like, no. Nah. And he's like, oh, man, us libs got to stick together. Like, I'll hook you up. And I was like, fuck, sweet. Like, keep in mind, <laughs> I was his biggest fan for, like, four years. <laughs> so, and this is when I was on the junior team, and I was like, holy shit, this guy knows who I am. And then the next day, literally the next day, or maybe it was even, like, the next training, he brings me, a, like, a shaker, like a protein shaker. And he's like, here you go, man. And I was like, fuck, I appreciate this so much. Thank you. He probably thought almost nothing of it, just, like, hooking a, hooking a guy up. I have to this day not used that water bottle. No way. <laughs> I sort of got. Um, and he saw me like another, maybe a week later, and he's like, hey, man, where's your bottle? Like, did you did you lose it already or did you forget it? And I can't say like, no, man, I'm, it's, in, it's in safekeeping for the rest of my life. <laughs> so I just have to be like, oh, man, I forgot it again. <laughs> oh, man. That's such an embarrassing story. So this, if he hears this, that'll be the first time he knows the end of that yeah, story. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah, that's great. I love <laughs> having. Day, he probably thinks I just lost the bottle that he gave me. <laughs> that's amazing. Thank you. So with you spending a year at NEP, what was your B team tryout like? Like, like you mentioned, the 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 vibe around the venue changes when some guys come back from their pro contracts. So. Were you feeling confident that all those reps and passing 800 balls a day, like you were ready for the B team tryout or were you still a little nervous for, for that level of competition? Unfortunately, or maybe fortunately my first year tryout for the B team, the first practice I dislocated my shoulder. So I was basically just out right there. Um, and Dan talked to me, he's like, okay, like it's going to be really hard for us to get you a pro contract now coming off an injury like that. So what about coming back to NEP again? And I was like, all right, well, Fair enough. Like, I don't know. I don't really know enough about what this process is like to like be able to be like, no, nah, I don't think that's a good idea. So I was like, okay, let's do it again. And after doing two years of NEP, like, and basically living in Quebec and training at that center every day for two years and having, and, and starting to build a relationship with more of the guys, like kind of in volleyball Canada, like I talked to, I used to play Fortnite with Nick a whole bunch and Schwan and I and Danny and I and, and Tariq and I, um, I've been closed for a long time. So I got kind of more comfortable with everything about the surroundings. And because I had just come off like the worst case scenario tryout of the previous year, like um, the year I made the B team, I was 
not really nervous at all. Like I'd kind of made my peace uh, with volleyball because I got hurt so bad the last year. So either way it went, I was kind of just happy to be a part of the program for so long. And then making the B team last summer was an amazing opportunity. Like obviously you you put in your time and you are a professional player. Like like you said, you're training full time. But what was it like being on the younger side of that roster where you had vets like Jeremy Davies and like Danny Damianenko and guys who have been around and played for Canada? Like how did how did the team kind of mold where there was a big uh, age difference for some guys? Yeah, the old timers were nice, uh, but there I find I find that in sport like the. The higher you go, or I think in anything you do, the higher you go up in terms of like expertise, the more extreme the personalities get. So that was really interesting. Uh, I found that the personalities on the team were so unique that getting to know everybody was like it was it wasn't like a grueling like, hi, like no one knows who I am. Um, Nice to meet you. I like these colors. I like to do these things for fun. Like (laughs) it was like a really interesting time getting to know everybody and like uh like the way they understand the game and the once you're at that level like the pursuit of volleyball it's not like a pastime like on the junior team you kind of get young guys that are kind of in school and maybe they want to pursue volleyball forever but also maybe they want to be an accountant but these guys are all playing professionally so all day it's like tactics and like theory crafting about volleyball and like game theory and stuff like that and like like seeing seeing how a middle understands the game of volleyball at an extremely high level is a very different experience than understanding how jerseys volleyball as a super high level libero you know or a setter like the the tactics that have to go through a national team level setter's mind is unbelievable like truly unbelievable like yeah i had a whole new appreciation for the game after just talking to a few of these guys yeah, any any stories you want to share? Because I'm just uh, I just pulled up the roster. Like, there's some guys like Casey who have been like at the at the highest level with the A team guys, and then there was guys like Joey Jarvis who I think it was their first time with the national team, right? And then you just mentioned like the setters. We had Derek App on the show, and I could listen to that guy talk about setting all day and yeah, the level of detail. My, I was like, roommates with App Man, the guy's a genius. <laughs> Truly, oh, I think the best story I have for that will be Danny. Like, so basically. I'd been trained as a libero to you basically want to use like prediction until basically contact where you have to be stopped and just use your reflexes. So the idea of diving into a seam for a hero dig, it might look good, but it's inefficient. Like diving in like four or five meters, basically into the middle of the court to stop a bomb. But if someone at the international level can hit uh, extreme angles from four or from two, it's it's less efficient for the middle to try really hard to close the block like they need to be taking the angle and funnel the defense funnel the ball to more or less the middle of the court that you can cover with two people which didn't make sense to me until we used it in practice basically uh brandon coppers can basically he can hit four from four and danny played with bk like three four years like they played at mac together so he he had this understanding of how he plays and I was kind of raw. I never played with BK before. So basically, like, um, they're so intricate. The tactics are so intricate, even in training, that the first ball of, like, some scrimmage we had, he was like, hey, stand basically, like, this high in six on top of the other guy in six. I'll take away the angle, and the guy in four will take away the push and tip, like, and stuff like that. And I was like, that doesn't make any sense. Like, you're going to intentionally not close the block. <laughs> like, you're going to stop short for no reason. And 
even if they run like 31 and he fronts the 31, he'll sit on the 31 and jump in that same gap just to take away the angle. And we ended up like shutting him down completely because we funneled his ball into two defenders. But stuff like that, like the tactics get so crazy at that level. Like that was, that's probably my most memorable story about having my mind blown by just like trying to understand the way these guys think. Yeah, it's great to hear stories like that. Thank you. When we had TJ on the show, he talked about like effort and attitude aren't things that the national team ever talks about. Like they get on guys about practice about like, what are you seeing? What was your response? Like going for balls isn't an option. It's it's the tactical stuff like that about stand here, do your job. Like I'm going to be responsible for this. So it's just cool to see that it's not just the, the super high level guys like TJ that even Danny, who's a vet now as a pro player, I keep forgetting how old he is because I've known him for so long that it's cool that he's bringing up those tactics with the B team guys as well. I just wanted to, uh, to pick your brain a little bit about Dan Lewis and what he's brought to the program because I've never heard a bad thing said about Dan. So uh, were you aware of his playing style and his reputation when he became a coach or he was just a coach at the center who was there to help you get better? I had no idea what this dude was like. Uh, <laughs> like literally, I, had no, I, I knew he was smart. And I knew he was the greatest libero that Canada's ever had. So I was like, okay, I play libero. Like this is best case scenario to be coached by another libero uh i had no idea how deep the rabbit hole would go man it's the dude is is so smart that it's it can make you uncomfortable sometimes when because at the beginning of training like he'll draw stuff out on the board and try to explain it to us and it'll make perfect sense when he's explaining it to us and we'll understand it but how do I say this? It's like explaining quantum physics to a child and then having that child repeat it back to you perfectly and then not even really understand why they understand it, you know? <laughs> like, he would make you play super well and then you'd like, how do I say, like, you kind of reflect on this skill you just did and you're like, no, 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 that's, that kind of improvement's not normal. Like, oh, man. We had a moment with John Obi this year where, like, he started playing volleyball super late and he was a middle blocker and he wasn't traditionally trained in reception and setting and ball control and like uh, volleyball and IQ and stuff like that. And we had this, uh, have you ever seen my fair lady? No, I haven't. I've heard of it. I haven't actually taken the time though. Basically the gist is this woman who doesn't know how to speak properly, learns how to speak properly. And it's like a miracle. So Obi had like no functional training in like the volleyball, like movement. And we watched literally over the course of like 30 minutes, Dan explained movement. Like we'd all basically finished our work. It was like me, bird, Zach and Cole. And we were just like watching him explain the movement of volleyball to Obi. And then he went to go receive without actually having done any of the actions. And it was like night and day. And we're like, what just happened? <laughs> <laughs> like you, he hasn't actually done anything. And he just like spoke to him for 10 minutes. And then he went and just like chipped a bunch of free balls over. And there was a bucket in two and a half. And he was having like perfect success without ever like, like he could not pass a ball like 30 minutes before this. And we all just left the gym in awe like, all right, well, better not interrupt this. Like what is going on here? Yeah, Dan Lewis gave a presentation when I was in Gatineau learning from Lionel for some just some performance analysis stuff. And it was so funny. Dan stopped his presentation in the middle to send a message to a guy about video about like, have you watched this? 
And then we're asking him, was like, oh, is that normal? And he's like, so yeah, like, I know everybody's schedule. So I know if, like, he, he didn't use your name, but he's, like, another player. Like, if Dre likes to wake up in the morning early, I'll send him the message then. But I know this guy likes to be up late, so I'll send him the message then. So he's like, I like to convince the whole room that I'm just thinking about volleyball 24 hours a day. Meanwhile, he's just like, I have it all prepped, and then I just decide when I want to send it to each guy. <laughs> that Oh, my goodness. It's so crazy. Like, he'll – and that's the honest truth because uh, – <laughs> And our like Dan and I, I was the only libero uh, last year, so Dan and I have been like, there's a group chat for each position, but he'll just send me personal messages, and I get all of my video at like 12 at night. Basically, like he's watching the practice after the training has happened to like send individual feedback, which is superhuman in itself. Like we have two three hour sessions a day. And like, even now, like I talked to Dan today and we'll still get like random clips of stuff that we can do better. It's like, when, when are you not thinking about volleyball? This is crazy. <laughs> oh man. So is there any one thing that you can kind of share with us that he's had the biggest impact on you? Like just something that uh, maybe a listener can apply to their own game? Yeah. I'd say if you're a little bear right now and having, and you're not having success with defense, I would say watch more video and then just move less. Like I'd say 90% of the, if what's that one saying? Like, uh, 90% of some kind of activity is the prep and then 10% of do of actually doing it is doing it. I would say that's defense, like understanding your opponent before they attack is probably more important than your actual defense technique. Defense technique almost doesn't even really matter to defense. Like if you're in the right spot and you get hit, that's a hundred thousand times more valuable than having perfect defense technique. Like, and especially as the ball becomes more hard driven, like you you don't really have time. Like you're not going to put your arms together and make a platform. Like at the end of the day, you're just going to get hit by the ball and you try to create an area that it goes upward and towards your teammates. So yeah, move less. Definitely. Like if, if you've ever watched me play, I'm a little bit sporadic. So that's definitely the best advice I've ever got. Like you is you've done the research, you've scouted your opponent, like, um, understand where they like to attack and their hitter, hitter directions get in that area and then just try to get hit so with that like with the prep like let's say danny's example where somebody's gonna a left side's gonna bang a lot of balls to like the, the tee or out the sideline that way you would literally go stand in that spot to take it away or do you want to be moving in late like do you want them to know that they can hit their favorite shot or do you just want to stand there and shut it down completely in an ideal world if there's a solid two-man block like if they pass a ball and exclamative i guess and there's when we get a solid two-man block no matter where i am i'm gonna be outside the block but if there's a specific case like there's a guy from chile who basically every time there was a two-man block he wouldn't even try to go for the angle at the sideline he would just blast a ball at the back so in a specific case like that i would just go stand on the baseline and you're basically playing the percentages like so far we've scouted this guy as 60 70 80 90 percent of his shots in this situation do this so if he pulls something crazy out and starts hitting the angle when we've scouted that he doesn't do that, then we make that adjustment in the game. But we basically played the percentages like this happens most often in the most cases, I think. But yeah, I would definitely try to get there ahead of time. I definitely wouldn't want to be moving in late. I would go against, go against my whole principle of not moving at all if you can. Definitely. And, and what's your eye sequence when you're in game? So you have an idea that they like to hit this zone 60 plus percent of the time or whatever. So are you like a big 
ball setter, ball hitter guy? Do you want to pick up the angle of approach? Like, what's kind of your your path once the ball's passed? Am I a defender or a blocker in this situation? Uh, as a defender. If I'm a defender, the first thing you need to look at, no matter what, is the middle. Like, I wouldn't even look at the setter. You need to know if the middle's running first. And then you pick up their tendencies. So, like, for example, if there's a middle, a lot of middles in – in the in Canada, basically, like approach to five and hit to five, or they do some kind of push or throw to one. So if you know a guy's going to bang balls to five, and you're not having your middle or left side adjust for that, you basically just get dug in and get as big as you can in that situation, and hope it doesn't hit you in the face. <laughs> um, and then after that, you're kind of looking at the reception: is it double plus? Is it perfect? Is it imperfect? Like where, kind of. Uh, what options do they have in that situation? And then you're looking for a setter tendency. So Chauncey, for example, from Montreal, if he's running an exclamative and has a chance to kind of use his momentum to reverse the ball, he's he's incredible at that, probably one of the best in Canada. But he also does it really often. So you're kind of looking for those tendencies as a player. And then in that situation, like if you have an opposite that when the ball gets reversed to them, they lose a little bit of the line because – it's kind of a longer set and it's hard to finish external. Maybe I'm not so far on the sideline in that situation. I would take a step to my left off the sideline. That's kind of the information you have to take in in one sequence of like pass, set, attack, attack. But you, you kind of get used to that if you quiz yourself a little bit. Like in this situation, what would I do? It's so cool to hear the language you're talking about with like what Lionel and Dan call like a double plus pass and stuff like that. That everything's so consistent throughout the building. So with you entering the program as, as a good college player and a good club player, what helped your learning the most? Was it just the amount of volume of hours that they're putting on you? Like, do you keep a journal or how have you kind of gained this? Because I, I, I'm willing to bet you didn't call it a double plus in 18 you were in college, right? No, not at all. I think that the terminology has always changed. Like I think when I was 15, 14, 15, 16 you, a three pass was a perfect pass. And then they wanted to be able to have more nuance in the terminology. So it became a four pass was perfect. Three was you still have the middle, but it's imperfect. Two is basically um, exclamative, which is like uh, you can only set the pins. And then a one was um, you basically are only in high ball. And I think this terminology is just an extension of that. Like double plus, you don't move plus like similar, similar theory and everything. I think the idea is just so that um, we can become more sophisticated in the way we understand statistics. Like if you're a left side, like uh, how do I say some, some stats may be a little bit skewed because their value isn't understood that well from just looking at the numbers. Like if you have a P2, for example, whose hitting percentage is almost negative compared to your P1 who's hitting like 500 right away, you'd say, okay, well, this player is better. But then you look at, okay, the P1 is getting the ball never in serve receive, never in broken transition, only basically on free balls where there's a one-on-one, and maybe they're also matched up with a setter, whereas your P2 is basically getting junk balls only out of system. They're not making errors. Their plus minus is zero, so they're not scoring but they're not making errors and they're only getting balls where there's virtually no opportunity to score. So I would say those, the terminology has just been there to help us become more sophisticated in in our understanding of situations like that. Like I think line now the stats for just hitting efficiency is like, okay, hitting inside out, 
hitting inside out when you've received, hitting inside out when you've received in your inside, hitting inside out when you've received inside and you're in two versus when you're in four, um, hitting when you in transition, broken ball transition, high ball transition, and then exclamative, like all of those statistics, like maybe you're really efficient hitting from uh, double plus, but you can't score on a high ball. So you're virtually unsettable out of system, which crushes your value to a team. Or you're a guy like in Gapith who's always available in transition, even in the worst type of scenarios. Maybe you pass a ball in two, but you still manage to be available in four. That kind of availability makes the rest of your team more efficient because it, it spreads the – they have to block now nine meters of net instead of maybe four meters of net. Wow, this is this is awesome. And were you joking when you said like if you quiz yourself or is that something you like to do when you're just – on free time thinking the game or maybe just having a conversation with a coach or a teammate are you guys talking about situations of oh what if this happens and they're in this rotation like how deep does this go it goes pretty deep it goes too deep to a fault i would say as a player like i think as a coach and understanding the game and scouting you need all this information but then at the end of the day you just got to go out and play like if you're thinking about all that shit when you play you have no chance you have no chance <laughs> to execute any of those skills like uh yeah paralysis by analysis for sure i think you just you, you put the work in beforehand and then when you get out there just play and you get your reminders from your teammates and your coach that maybe there's a certain tactic or maybe you need to follow this certain thing but if you're going out and you're at the net ready to block and you're like okay this middle likes to hit here but i have to block right side but they might set pipe but like you have no chance Nice. So what's next for you? I know Canada's done well in getting pro contracts and I got a lot of guys are leaving CCAA or U Sports and, and getting those opportunities. But I think one thing that's not talked about very much in, in the community is how hard it is for a foreigner to get a libero contract sometimes. So how have your talks gone? Do you have an agent? Like what are your plans coming up now that you've put in time with, with the B team, junior national team, FDC, all that good stuff? Yeah, no, I do have an agent. Uh, him and I have a really good relationship. There have been a few opportunities in Germany, Czech Republic, um, and France, but I think logically, if I was a team owner as well, and I'm running a business, I need to put people in the seats, and I also need to entertain them. Am I going to take some giant opposite that can wow the the fans watching, and yeah, versus like a libero who? Their job, like at the end of the day, unless you're in a really, really elite club, you can probably honestly just put a left side at Libero and you can put a local left side at Libero so you don't have to take an import slot. So I can understand definitely in terms of like the business aspect, it is difficult without like significant international exposure to get a contract as, as, a, as a Libero. But that's just the nature of the business. Like I, I understood that one when I got into it. So I'm not really disappointed. My plans now are I want to go back to, to school for computer programming. So eventually, hopefully in the not too distant future, I could create a quality volleyball game, something along the lines of like 2K or FIFA or Madden or something like that. I could only imagine like the reach that would have globally because a lot of the like Madden is virtually only played in the states and it's a massive game internationally so i could imagine like fifa is the biggest sports game in the world because it's played everywhere and volleyball is a universally recognized sport if you go to any beach in the world there are people playing beach volleyball so i definitely want to make a game 
Yeah, and I think FIFA's done so well that people who don't really understand soccer or even, like, the club system, once you play it, it's so detailed that you, you start to feel like you start to understand tactics and transfers yeah. and leagues Literally. and all that stuff. Yeah. Nice, man. So it sounds like you got a lot on the go, but uh, I want to thank you for taking the time. I definitely highly recommend it, and I could see why. Um, I was wondering if you had a, another story you could share. So that Blair Band one was awesome. I was wondering if you had a different one that you could just leave us with another laugh before we let you go. Uh, I'd say the funniest thing uh, that's ever happened to me at NEP is, and this is like a tradition now, like I hope they do this every year from now on. Um, we go to Dan's house and we basically like celebrate the year together. Um, there's like a big feast and like we played, like we played some like boat, like we basically play like a bunch of like kitty games, but it's like a community thing. So it's all fun. Like we play uh, mini sticks in his basement and like he has like a tiny little volleyball net and we play like beach volleyball on our knees um and i remember last year and the year before this it was really funny the first year um he was just joking and he, he came out with an axe because there was a fire outside and he was putting wood in the fire and he goes who wants to cut down a tree <laughs> <laughs> so as a joke we're like yeah sure let's cut down a tree and he lives in like a forested area kind of so there was room to do this and for the next hour and a half for no reason at all we just cut down a tree next to his house to bond because <laughs> he's all about like being one with nature and like uh like community and stuff like that and getting rid of technology and stuff like that so it was awesome to like i don't know embrace that <laughs> and then last year we did it too like this this year that just passed people it's always funny like the axe comes out and people are like, yeah, let's do it. And then you start cutting the tree and then people are like, ah, no, this is dumb. Like, let's not waste the time doing this. Let's not physically exert ourselves. Like, this is supposed to be vacation time. And then like 80% through the tree, everyone starts to get really excited again. Like, this is actually going to fall. Like, we actually just cut down a tree. <laughs> There's something really unique about that feeling, man. I recommend it to, to anybody. And this, you like you said, this was an axe, like no chainsaw, no aid, like yeah, everybody no, just taking turns on the axe. Process. Yeah. Oh man, that's great. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that one. Thanks for having me. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Thanks again, man. Uh, best of luck with everything you got going on. And if if it's not pro volleyball this year, if it's back to school and pro volleyball after, either way, uh, easy guy to root for. And thanks for taking the time. Thanks. Sweet.